Good morning. Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. It's good to be here with you. I know that um, we do this every Sunday, but it, it sincerely doesn't get old. I'm, I'm grateful to know that I have brothers and sisters in Christ that I can join together with and praise our risen Savior every Sunday and worship Him throughout the week on mission. And so to call you my family is something that's really meaningful to me. And as we're singing these songs about believing in these things or this day in our culture where we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, I can't help but also think about many people who just don't believe this. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is a God or the God. And, and that is something devastating um, to those who really know him as God, or at least it should be. And so this morning, as we did last week, we're going to talk about who Jesus is. Um, but we're going to do so by considering what it means for him to be God. And I sometimes like to give you like a, an idea of where I'm headed in a sermon, just because so, I like that personally, just to know like, okay, what's coming. Um, it's, it's basically going to be the gospel. So if, you're, if you like the gospel, then you should like what's coming. Um, but also I want to I get into the intellectual parts of who Jesus is just a little bit to kind of start this off, because though knowledge does not give us belief, I think it gives us greater confidence in what we believe. And so we are going to take some time to just to think about who God is. Uh, and, I, and I want to be honest and just say he's difficult to understand. In fact, the reason so many people don't believe is because so much of it's unbelievable. And that is kind of why having faith is a miracle. Because something that's impossible, something that's unbelievable be, becomes believable. And, and knowing him is made possible because of Christ. Knowing him is possible because of what happened on the very first Easter Sunday. He created us to know him. Sin broke that. He wants us to know him. So he steps in, takes on the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose from the dead, leaving death behind. And now we're saved, not just saved from hell, but saved to something, saved for something. And this is the work of the gospel in us. And it's this eternity-changing truth that we're seeking to grasp every Sunday when we get here and we, we teach through the Word of God because it's difficult to grasp, but by the work of the Spirit, we understand. And we're brought, we're brought to life just as Christ came back to life. So with that framework, we're going to get into this. But let's pray because we're hopeless without the work of the Spirit. Father, I'm so grateful for opportunities like this one to boast in your goodness and your power. I pray, Lord, more than anything this morning, you would be glorified in all that is said. That every individual in this room could walk away from here having heard the gospel and forced to face the realities of it. But more than being impressed with anything, they would be in awe of you. And we would be in awe of you and who you are. Help us because we need it. Show us truth this morning. Change us. Free us by this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So due to my racial ambiguity, I'm often asked the question, what are you? I get it a lot. Uh, less as I get older, maybe the culture gets more sensitive to those kind of things. You're like, I shouldn't just say, what are you to a person? Uh, what they mean is, what's your heritage? Like, what color are your parents? Like, you look weird to me. I don't have a category. What are you? Is the question. It just happens to be annoying. 
but because of that, I've actually, I've actually answered that question, at least to myself, what am I? I want to sarcastically just say a human being, because that's what I am. And in, in truth, that's what we all are. That's when we ask this question, what am I? We're humans. So referring to the kind of being that we are, we're human beings. That's what we are. It's an altogether different question to then ask someone, who are you? Who am I? Who's my person? Well, I'm Kendrick. I'm Kendrick Wayne Banks, the first and probably last. Kendrick Wayne Banks. And that's who I am. Now, we can add layers to the who. So there is race involved. There's my political affiliation, my religious affiliation, my denomination or subcategories of that, my hair color, my eye color, the roles I play in life as a father, a son, a husband, a friend, a pastor. There's a lot to who I am. But all of that is is wrapped up into what I am, a human being. All of our who is wrapped up into what we be. All right? So I am a, a being, one being, and I am one person with complexity. I'm one being and I'm one person. God, however, is triune in nature. He exists in Trinity. This is something increasingly difficult to process as we enter into a culture that wants to make gods of everything. Or I say enter into one. It's always been that way. We try to worship other stuff or try to figure out God, but there's a necessary mystery to his being. But he is one being. He's God. And that one being simultaneously exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's mystery, but each person is different. There's a different who. So roles and distinctions and personalities, yet still one God, one essence, one nature, co-equal, co-eternal, one in being, one in power, one in action, one in will. There is nothing here on earth that compares to this. So don't try to make a metaphor work. It's not going to work, at least not holistically. That's, there's nothing that fully represents who he is and what he is in our understanding of one person, one being. Scripture says he's unsearchable, he's immeasurable, he's inexhaustible. So whatever it is you think he is, he's certainly more. He doesn't doesn't manifest himself in different roles at different times. He doesn't wear different masks or show up and then leave and come back as a different person. He's always who he is for eternity. There's no part of him that created another part of him. He's holistically who he is. Infinity past and infinity future. He is who he is, infinite God. He's not three different parts of a whole. So he's one God, three persons. So if you caught that, I'm, I'm trying to say he's not water that can be ice and vapor and liquid. He's not an egg with a shell, a white and a yolk. He, he's, he's not a father, son and husband. That's what I am. That's three persons. And no, that's not it. You can't make, it's not three in one shampoo, conditioner, body wash. It's not Three notes to make a chord. It's none of those things. Maybe it's all of those things, but you can't make one thing out of all those things. We can't get our heads around it. There's a necessary mystery, and that's what strikes in us this awe of a God beyond us. That's what makes me want to worship him. If I could understand him intellectually and explain it perfectly to you, then all of a sudden I'm better than that thing. God is far beyond us, and he's mysterious, and it's Wonderful that, that that's the case. And by his grace, through his word, we learn of who he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're made new. Our humanity is redeemed, reconciled to our Father as long-lost children. 
searching for home. The Son comes and He brings us to the Father by the power of the Spirit. It's one God working for our salvation. And on this Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about Jesus, this one person. Surprise. If you knew we were going to talk about Jesus today. Last week we heard of his humanity, though truly God and fully God. He took on flesh, so he accomplished all that's necessary for our justification and for our sanctification. He had to be human because God can't become sin. God can't die. God can't even be around sinners. So he had to be human. But Jesus is also fully and truly God, and this has great significance for us. So we're going to try and talk about that today. But the Trinity, as I just explained, is complex and mysterious and deep and profound, and we could talk about it on and on. The doctrine of the incarnation of Christ is at least as perplexing. In fact, for me, it's, I, I cannot really get how God can be human, but also be God. It doesn't make sense to us because it's not like us. Jesus somehow isn't just God or just human, and he's not some weird combination of the two. He is who he is, the God-man. The great theologian J.I. Packer said, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. In other words, you can't make this stuff up. Nobody would even think to try and do this. Jesus has two natures, God and man, yet he's one person. Human and divine, they're inseparable. He will forever be the God-man, fully and truly God and fully and truly human. Two distinct natures, one person. So two answers to the what question, one answer to the who question. His humanity and his divinity are not mixed together. They're united without a loss of either identity. It's not One's not watered down by the other one. They somehow coexist without the limitations that we often know that humans are limited by, but somehow he limits himself in his humanity. We see this in Matthew chapter 4. I love this passage. It's right after the baptism. He goes into the wilderness. Satan's tempting him. And scripture says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. Duh. (laughs) Jesus is human. He hungers. Also in John chapter 4, he's on this journey through Samaria, which Jews didn't do as a side note, but he intentionally goes this way in his divinity, knowing he's going to meet a lady at the the well who needs to know him. It just so happens that in this journey, God, as man, gets thirsty. So he sits down, weary from the journey, to drink from this well and have this encounter with a woman who needs to know he's God. Again, in, in chapter 19 of John, we see Jesus thirsts, but this time he's hanging from a cross, his humanity ever-present, exposed to the world, dying, as all humans do. And he asks for a drink. But then there's other times where he demonstrates great power in his deity. You know, he calms storms with his words. He raises the dead. He feeds masses of people with a little boy's lunch. He does these miraculous things. He knows the thoughts of those around him. It's not like this movie, Son of Man or Son of God, whatever it was, that like, for some reason they portray Jesus as like a magician or, or psychic. Like He gets these visions like Raven does. On, that's so Raven. Like, that's not Jesus. He's always God. He's always been God. He will always be God. And, and taking on flesh, he will always be man. 
which we heard last week. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that sermon. We heard last week it's necessary for him to be man. This week I want to emphasize it's necessary for him to be God. Why does this matter? Because if he were merely man, it's not enough. He It doesn't matter how good of a teacher he is. It's not enough. It doesn't matter how prophetic he is, how in tune he is with God and proclaiming prophecy. That's not enough. Even a law-abiding, brilliant sage or charismatic teacher or whatever he is, like this this guy who started a revolution by loving people and sticking it to the man, that's not enough to save souls. In order to atone for the sin, in order to bear the wrath that we deserve, to impute to us righteousness, He had to be man, and he had to be God. He is and must be what we cannot be, an infinite source, a well that never runs dry, the bread of life. This is Jesus, necessarily so. His immeasurable love, it runs deep and wide, and he must be God for this to be true. All that is true of God must be true of Jesus. He is the only way we can know God, and he wants you to know him. The great African theologian Augustine, some pronounce his name Augustine, he said, man's maker was made man that the bread might be hungry, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that strength might be made weak, that life might die. In other words, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In his deity-wrapped humanity alone, he saves us. That's why it's necessary. But, reasonable question to ask, is Jesus God? Even after all that, is he? Like, do we even know that he's for sure God? If you believe the Bible, then absolutely yes. There's no argument that holds up against it. Old Testament prophecy meets New Testament fulfillment in Jesus, clearly. It would, it would, in fact, if you read Scripture rightly, it'd be impossible to disprove he's God. There's heretical views in interpreting Scripture and some rewrite and rephrase to make Jesus the archangel Michael who takes on flesh and take away his deity. He's now a creation of God the firstborn. They, they use Scripture and twist it to mean different things. This is the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's others who would say Jesus was a soul child, just like we're all soul children of God, the Father, and God, Goddess, the Mother, who we don't talk about a lot because that's weird. But they had soul children, then populated the world and gave them flesh. Jesus, the firstborn of these soul children, came to save the rest of us because we're too weak to resist sin in our own right. This is the teaching of the Mormon church. That's not Jesus. We have to rightly see who he is in Scripture But when we do, we see clearly he must be God. In fact, in the the epistles, many of the authors refer to him as Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God and Savior Jesus Christ, Lord of all Jesus Christ. It seems evident they believed he was Lord, he was God, he was Savior. And then there are some implications that are very strong throughout the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 1, one of the most beautiful passages of who Jesus is, we see, starting in verse 17, he is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he rose, firstborn from the dead, and we will rise because he rose. So that he he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 
and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The fullness of God abiding in Christ, that all would be reconciled. Jesus is God, according to Scripture. But do we, do we see Jesus say verbatim, I'm God, worship me? This is a common argument. How can we believe Jesus is God? He never claimed to be God himself. Well, it just so happens that's right. He never said, I'm God, worship me. But very often he affirmed his deity in other ways. In John chapter 8, verse 58, John, or Jesus says, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I am this way in which God refers to himself, I am. But also, he's claiming to be older than Abraham. What do we think? This is just a really, is Benjamin Buttons? or I mean, what's going on here? Clearly, he's making a claim. In John chapter 14, 6 through 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We can also see in the ministry of Jesus, he forgives sin and declares people to be saved, which only God can do. In John chapter 5, the Jewish leaders begin to have a problem with this and they address it. And Jesus responds to them and says, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also or he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. These Jews recognize his claims to be God and the things he was saying and doing. He's saying he is God. According to John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. And they try to stone him for this reason. And it goes on. And he said, he goes to address it. Are you stoning me because I'm doing good things? And he says in verse 33, we, or they say, we aren't stoning you for good work, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Some translations just straight up say you're claiming to be God. So though we don't have recorded in Scripture Jesus saying, I am God, worship me, it seems very evident he recognizes he's God and everyone else does. In the New Testament, Jesus is worshipped and receives it. He doesn't turn him away. People refer to him as Lord and he doesn't correct them. He, he claims to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's speaking of his nature. Remember, two natures, Son of God, Son of Man. That, what does that make him? God-man. Both, both necessary. He never denies his deity. He never says, I'm just a teacher, just a prophet, or merely a man. Never. In fact, his claims to be the Son of God bring charges of blasphemy against him and eventually have him crucified. The bottom line is we must have a Jesus who claims to be God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have killed him for it. Moreover, he proved he is God because he didn't stay dead. He got up out of the grave. So now, there's the heady part. What does this mean for us? Why does any of this matter? Why does... Demonstrating he's God change anything about our lives. If Jesus isn't God, looking to him, trusting him, worshiping him is in vain. If he is God, it means everything changes just by looking to him. Hebrews chapter 12, or before that, chapter 11 gives us this beautiful exposition of Old Testament. Like It, it tells us the, re, the ways in which faith existed throughout the Old Testament. If you ever just need a good picture of what happened and why it happened, read through Hebrews. It gives a, a wonderful demonstration of who Jesus is and his deity. 
But in Hebrews 11, we see guys like from Abel to to Abraham, to Moses, just walking through Scripture saying, here's their faith, here's their faith, here's their faith. And it reaches this point in chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all these witnesses, all those who have gone before us, all believers who have ever lived are watching us do this work as the body of Christ. Because we're surrounded, let us throw off everything. Let's set aside the sin and, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter, the initiator, the one who started this all, the source of our faith, Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If I could urge you to do anything, it's to look to Jesus this morning. When you feel there's not hope, when, you, when it seems like sin is winning, fix your eyes on Jesus because if you don't magnify Jesus in your view, you'll certainly normalize him. You'll overhumanize him in our attempts to find something to do with him, we, we make him more human than we ought to. Like we're, we can give us a, an attainable goal to reach. We, we then strap on all these works to do. We try and behave. We try to make people around us happy. We take our eyes off of Jesus and we start to focus on man. And when we fix our eyes on ourselves, everything goes wrong. We make Christianity man-centered. We reduce, we reduce Jesus, the unattainable, to something attainable. And we focus all of our energy on following him in our own works, in our own means, by our own strength, rather than sacrificing ourselves in worship to him daily and him transforming us. So I have a question. Do you rightly see Jesus when you look at him? And how do you think he sees you? Like, this isn't just a question that somebody's asking in a sermon. Like, ask yourself, Do I see Jesus and consider how you see him reflecting how he sees you? What does he think about you? And would Jesus describe himself as you describe him? It's kind of a weird thing to process maybe, but if we fail to work through this, I think we easily worship an idol who we name Jesus. I don't know who that is for you. I don't know if he has lily-white skin and flowing sandy hair and blue eyes that pierce into your soul, stands at six foot five, and he's jacked because he's a carpenter, you know. I don't know what you're picturing when you see Jesus, but what if he's a short brown man? I don't know what to do with that. Not even thinking physically, a Jesus who, who cares solely or ultimately about your adherence to the law, as if obedience is supreme. That's not Jesus. Or a Jesus who cares solely or ultimately about your happiness, as if your feelings are supreme. That's not Jesus. Or a Jesus who cares solely or ultimately about pursuing perfection in your doctrine, as if your knowledge is supreme. Well, that's not Jesus either. A Jesus who cares solely or ultimately about your perfect performance, as as if your behavior is supreme. Not Jesus. A Jesus who cares solely or ultimately about your satisfaction, as if the rules don't really matter that much as long as you're satisfied, your fulfillment is supreme. That's not Jesus. Sure, those things may amount to some figure that could be Jesus if you add them all together and shave away the sinful parts. Like Something in there might fit, but ultimately that, that ain't it. Jesus may be who you think he is, but he's certainly more. If you don't love him, if you don't desire to know him, if you can't 
feel his love for you, I think it's certain you don't know him at all. If, if you don't worship him when you think of him, if you aren't met with peace that frees you from the anxieties of life, if you don't experience joy when you think of who Jesus is, you're not thinking of the right Jesus because that's who he is for all those who are in him. So it's certain you don't know him. And if you really knew him, you would see his goodness and his glory. You'd feel the sweetness of his grace. You would be satisfied by the power of his love to buy you back from darkness and to give you life. There's so much broken in this world. Some are blind, like the religious leaders in Scripture who who try and manifest their own kingdoms by their own wills, their willpower and their own works and establish what they think is right and demand everyone follow it. There's some who are, are so caught up in defining good in their own terms that, that they have, they're like the masses of the New Testament who just follow Jesus because they want their bellies filled. They wanted Jesus for what he had to offer. They didn't want Jesus. There's so many in the world who think they have it right. They're confident in what they know is truth. Maybe it's truth in non-belief, but they have this idea of what makes the world what it is and and they'll ignore the future because that's too mysterious. There's, there's so much placed on that that they have nowhere to place hope. And while fronting, they're consumed with fear, no doubt. Why would we count anything else as significant if we really know Jesus? Why would we cling to the things in this world if we really saw him rightly? The Apostle Paul had an excellent grip on this, as he did many things. And though he had every right to claim perfection by the, the letter of the law and his, his Jewish religion, and he had every right to claim the privileges of his Roman citizenship, instead, in chapter 3 of Philippians, he writes, starting in verse 7, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Your translation may say rubbish. Dung is a better translation. In fact, if there were a stronger word for dung, you think of one. Because the point is, it's it's not like manure that can be used to grow flowers in. Like this is like, you know, the point is it's useless and it stinks. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. So because we can never gain anything from our obedience, he realizes righteousness will never come from the law, but from one that is in, it comes from faith in Christ, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So we access righteousness by grace through faith and repentance. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So it's not just that the things in this world lose their appeal they begin to lose their power. They don't grip your soul when you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you see who he is, you're blown back like the apostle Paul was 
on the road to Damascus. And the scales fall off and you can see who he is. And when you see who he is, nothing else matters. It's a pile of dung. Our souls are hungry and they feed on the things of this world unless we look to Jesus. And the things of this world fall away like dead things do. We become enamored and captivated and obsessed with Jesus, eager to know him more. So much so that we would even suffer and share in his death. So do you know this Jesus? Surely, if he is this great, he must be God. If you really know him, you see he's truly like us. But he's altogether holy, holy, holy. He knows us. He knows our pain. He was a man. He is a man. He's altogether beyond that as well. And the image, the perfect image of God. So if you would just look to him, you'll see it. Just fix your eyes on him and you'll see Jesus is sweeter than any sweetness, stronger than any strength, wiser than any sage, smarter than any genius. The finest things in life, the things that you could gain, status, reputation, riches, fame, the best of the best, the, the greatest you could imagine is dumb. If you fix your eyes on Jesus. So I wonder if you really know him this morning or do you just say you do and you're actually worshiping an idol? Do you feel the the weight your idols place on you to live up to something? You know, when we're angry at people for failing us or for hurting us, when we're angry, it's because we stopped looking at Jesus and we started looking to them and they're not God. So they fail us. When we hate ourselves, when we think we can never be enough, when we're frustrated, when we don't want to go on anymore, when we feel hopeless, it's because we took our eyes off of Jesus and we looked at ourselves and we're not God. So we can't do it. But Jesus is God. When, I, when we meet as leaders and elders in this church and we pray for each of you, when we think about our missional communities, when we pray in private, I'm so weighed down because I know I'm never enough And I have to come to a point in prayer when I remember, Kendrick, you're not God. You can't fix the problems. You can't make everyone happy. You're not going to be enough. You're not the head of the church. Christ is. I'm a servant to the people. I equip the saints for the work of ministry. But that weight is not on me. It's on Jesus. And he can handle it because he's God. When I consider those who walk into this room on Sunday mornings and feel alone in this room full of people. It breaks my heart that I can't fix that. When people walk away from the crossing because it wasn't what they expected it to be, I'm broken because I don't want the church to be broken. I want this to be a place everyone feels loved and feels like family, and we can celebrate the work of our God, and we can live on mission so that all of Monroe would be changed by this work of the gospel, but I can't do it. I can't save lost souls no matter how much I want it. And you can't either. You can't fix your problems. You can't fix other people's problems. You cannot be a savior because you're not God. But Jesus is. So if we could stop looking at ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus, everything else fades away. If we could remember the saints who have gone before us, who demonstrated faith for us to follow because they were humans, and look to Jesus with all of the church universal throughout history, if we could stop trying to find satisfaction in some man or some woman, if we could stop trying to be the savior for our families 
and look to Jesus, all that we desire is found in him. And you'll feel it. You'll know it. And you'll see him work. Maybe not when and how you think it's going to work out. But he's faithful always to work all things for your good. So I wonder, do you really know him? Are you looking to him? And even when we do, even when we fix our eyes on him, still sometimes it seems sin has won and we're losing. It seems like it's over. It's like an opponent has called checkmate. And if, if you know chess, then you know that's supposed to mean the game is over. But also, the game's not over as long as the king has another move left. And our king's not done. Jesus hanging on the cross, like this, this last weekend, as we reflect on what happened around 2,000 years ago, we imagine Jesus hanging on a cross. And I think about that day and in retrospect, like hindsight, I see it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And everything he has to say from that cross is enriching for my soul because I know he's getting up out of the grave. But in that moment, as followers of Christ sat before the cross, though few were there, as they sat before the cross and they looked to their Savior saying things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And forgive them, they know not what they do. And to the point where he says, it is finished. That seems like he's taken an L. It seems like checkmate, right? And they bury him. They put him in a tomb. Except for the king had another move. In fact, he flips the script. He changes everything. He conquers sin and death like no one thought he was. He rules as a king like no one expected, declaring victory over the enemy once and for all. This is our Savior, not just a man, but God who gets up out of the grave so that we might have life in him. So in case you're new here, we love the gospel. We try and center everything around the gospel, and we reflect on gospel truth again and again. But it's not enough to just know it. We've got to believe it. So I'm calling all in this room, everyone who hears the gospel proclaimed to believe it. And I want to do that by just telling you the story. So here's the story of the gospel as taken from the New Testament and paraphrased and put into these words. Hear the truth proclaimed and believe our God is faithful. From the beginning, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Even as Christians, we do this habitually. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator of all things. We fall short in our sin of God's glory. Just as he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, he says to us, the, the penalty for your sin is death. And in our sin, we are spiritually dead. That is with no hope and no life dead. As children of wrath, we live as enemies of God, opposed to him at every turn. And we turn away from him to our self-indulgence and we corrupt everything in every way. Apart from Christ, there is no hope and no one does good, not even one. What we deserve is the righteous judgment against evil and against evil doers, us. But in his great love for us, in his great mercy, God gave his one and only son. Now all who have faith to believe in him will not die, but have everlasting life if you would just believe. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
While we were hostile towards God, we were reconciled to our Father by the death of His Son, our brother, the King of kings, the innocent one, the Lamb of God, sacrificed in our place as a substitutionary atonement. Sin doesn't have the last word. Grace does. Death loses its sting and Christ rises victoriously from the grave. Now, everyone who calls on his name, on the name of Jesus, the name above every name will be saved and made new. We who believe this are born again. We are children of God, heirs with Christ. God, our Father, has adopted us. Therefore, all that is our Father's belongs to us. It's ours, it's our inheritance for eternity, and we are no longer orphans seeking a home in this world. We belong to God. We are citizens of heaven, a holy people chosen by God, sojourning here as exiles, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if this is you, believer, if this is you in his eyes, you are holy, you are blameless, you are righteous in the righteousness of Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. You are not who you once were. Sin is no longer your master. You are no longer its slave, for you have died to sin and are alive in Christ together as the church, and he is our head. We are finally free never to submit again to the yoke of slavery. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sin, all sin forgiven in Christ. All of your unrighteousness is washed away by the blood of our Savior. Your iniquities vanquished, your sins cast into the depths of the sea. The wrath owed to you for your sin is absorbed by Christ on the cross. The work is finished. You've been saved by his grace, not by anything you've done so that no man may boast. You've been justified by your faith, which is a gift from God. You are secure in him. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one is able to snatch you out of his hand. Not the enemy, not the world, not yourself. No one can take you from your father. You are his forever and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. All things you endure will be for your good and for his glory because that's his will and his will is always accomplished. Filled with and empowered by the spirit of God, the very spirit that resurrected Christ from the grave, his people have been equipped and encouraged to proclaim this good news on a mission to make Jesus known because there's nothing greater to fix your eyes on. We make disciples of all people for God's glory. We live with grateful hearts in light of his glory and in light of his grace. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, the authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your gospel truth. Let it stir up in us great affections for the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that you would be worshiped in this place because you are worthy of our praise. God, help us. We are in need of help. I know there are many here, perhaps everyone in this room, 
feeling the weight of sin. And I know you declare that as good because it reveals to us our need for a Savior and our inability to save ourselves. So I pray that you would show us repentance to give us faith to turn from our sin and fix our eyes on you, the one who perfects it, the source of all life, that you would be worshiped this morning, not just on Easter because it's Easter, but every day because you are risen and alive every day. And we alive in you, Lord, Lord, equip us to proclaim this truth, not just in these walls, but beyond it, that more and more people would worship Jesus as King. In Jesus' name, amen.